Okay, here's your next case. Um, it's a little subtle and hard to see. This is the trunk of uh, a one-month-old with um, a hypertrichotic patch. So what, what is this? Is this a nevus, a congenital melanocytic nevus, a smooth muscle hamartoma, a connective tissue nevus, a plexiform neurofibroma, or a mastocytoma? That'd be your differential diagnosis. This is a smooth muscle hamartoma. So they're very lightly pigmented, sometimes not even pigmented uh, early in life. Uh, there's some fine vellus hair, and sometimes uh, the lesion is a little bit bumpy because uh, there are increased smooth muscle bundles from the pilorecti muscles. And sometimes if you rub this, uh, uh, those pilorecti muscles will contract and you'll get a little goose flesh, so it sometimes stands up and elevates. Okay, here's our next case, a one-month-old with two weeks of erythematous annular plaques unresponsive to hydrocortisone and topical nizoral. Uncommon for a one-month-old um, to get fungus, um, but the primary care doctor who put them on nizoral uh, did you a little bit of a favor because... Um, didn't respond, so that makes fungus even less likely. Here's some more pictures. These are different children, not the same one. So there's a reticulated, uh, violaceous patch on the upper back um, and some periorbital erythema. What's the diagnosis? A, annular erythema of infancy. B, seborrheic dermatitis. C, tinea corporis. D, neonatal lupus, or E, congenital CMV. You guys all have your, your guesses in your minds. Okay, so this is neonatal lupus. Um, you're not going to see this very often, but this is a disease you do not want to miss. It's a uniquely pediatric disease. It's not SLE occurring in a newborn. And uh, the issue here is that uh, neonatal lupus is, is characterized by congenital heart block. You also get subacute lupus lesions. Sometimes there's a disease in the hepatobiliary system. You can get thrombocytopenia. And most newborns are going to have maternal anti-Rho or SSA antibodies. Sometimes, usually the mom is screened and this, the mom is, a known, uh, is known to have anti-SSA or anti-SSB antibodies. But sometimes that's not known and the, the, uh, those antibodies go through the placenta, and it's a surprise when the baby gets rash. So it's the most common cause of congenital heart block, and heart block is present in about half of the patients with neonatal lupus. The other, in addition, about half have cutaneous disease, and some smaller subset have mixed cutaneous and uh, cardiac disease. So what are the cutaneous features of neonatal lupus? Um, as I said, you have annular erythematous plaques. Sometimes you see a fine scale. You can often see hypopigmentation or just very subtle atrophy. Um, and here's a little pearl, these so-called raccoon eyes. This patient doesn't have dramatic findings of raccoon eyes, but periorbital um, erythema and edema are also characteristic of neonatal lupus. Often the baby... Uh, once mom and baby are feeling rested enough after about a week of life, they go for their first walk out in the stroller, the baby gets a little bit of sun, and the sun flares the lupus. So how do you manage this condition? Uh, 
If you're unsure or even if you're not completely sure, I'd recommend doing a skin biopsy. Uh, and if you do that, you're going to need to get a direct immunofluorescence uh, to look for IgG. Um, importantly, you want to get an EKG. Don't send them home to call for an EKG. You need to send them to the ER for an EKG right away because if they have heart block, um, it's just a matter of time before uh, they could be uh, in imminent danger. Um, what kind of lab should you order? They're, they're up here. U1 RNP is responsible for about 1% of all the cases, but it's not something you want to miss, so I include this with my panel. Um, I also get a CBC and liver function. You want to stress some protection. You could consider topical corticosteroids if you have active lesions, but um, you just want to make sure they don't have heart block, and if they do, that they're in a monitored setting or they have... Um, uh, some sort of uh, monitor in place, um, and then you just wait it out. Eventually, those antibodies will go away, but it's going to take four to six months. Okay, here's our next case. What is this? I gave a talk last night in L.A. to a bunch of dermatologists, and I threw some of these cases in, and nobody knew what this was. So hopefully, at least one person here will know. Did someone say? No. Okay, here are your choices. I didn't give them a multiple choice. But I'm going to give you multiple choice. Irritant contact derm, allergic contact derm, strep infection, or candida. Okay, this is strep intertrigo, um, characterized by fiery red erythema. It affects infants and young children, caused by group A strep tends to have a foul odor, and there aren't any satellite lesions which can differentiate it from uh, candida. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of irritant and allergic contact derm, but I've never seen any uh, contact derm that's this raging. So I would think infectious and think strep. This is one of those cases where until you've seen it, you, you probably wouldn't think of it. Hopefully you'd want to do a culture at least and get the diagnosis that way a couple days later. So you could treat uh, with uh, standard topical or PO antibiotics for this. Okay. Um, here's another one of these cases where if you've never seen it, you're just going to throw your hands up and really not know what to say to the family. But once you've seen one case, uh, you'll, know, you'll know it forever because they all look exactly the same. A 10-month-old with uh, asymptomatic bumps on the feet Often we see this, this is a 10-month-old, often we see this in patients that are a little bit older than this. They're subtle. Here's one there. They're easier to feel than they are to see and even harder to photograph. These are infantile pedal papules, so the sort of childhood equivalent of the painful piezogenic papule. They're probably just fat herniation through the dermis. Uh, we don't know what causes them. They usually don't result in any sort of functional problem, so kids walk on them normally. Um, they don't tend to cause any gait abnormalities. And they tend to go away on their own over a few years. Infantile pedal papules. All right, here's our next case. Uh, this is a young kid. I can't remember how old they are, maybe uh, seven or eight. 
Um, and with erythematous, a little bit crusted uh, area on the helix. Here's another child with just a more advanced form of the same thing. It occurred last spring around the same time, but wasn't as bad. Any thoughts about this? Juvenile springtime eruption. It's essentially uh, a photosensitivity disorder, um, not unlike PMLE or hydroa. Uh, it tends to occur on the tops of the ears um, more in boys than girls, just because boys tend to have shorter haircuts. Um, and the treatment really is just photoprotection. Hat, sunscreen uh, should do the job. They, uh, there's a hardening condition that, that, that occurs, and uh, these spontaneously remit after a few months. Okay, this is a fun case. These are d three different cases of all the same thing. Nine-year-old with uh, six months of subtle brown patches. Um, this one didn't photograph that well. This is on the back. This is a close-up of that. Here's the anterior neck. Mom thought it was dirt, um, but it didn't rub off and it didn't wash off with soap and water. You guys know what this is? This is the same case, or not, not the same case, same diagnosis. This patient came in with a new mole in the belly button. Terra firma forme, from the Latin dirty land. They can be very subtle, subtle brown hyperpigmentation, often with a velvety texture. Depending on the location, you might think that it's acanthosis nigricans. Um, it's probably a retention hyperkeratosis. So the bonds in those flattened out desquamated corneocytes in the stratum corneum are abnormally adherent, and the skin does not desquamate normally, so it just builds up. Um, amazingly, isopropyl alcohol, so your alcohol wipe uh, that you all have in your examination rooms, will break these keratinocyte bonds and um, uh, resolve this condition. So you can do this right in the office. You'll look like a complete superstar. You basically just take an alcohol wipe and just start wiping until you get to that, and it, it's gone. So here's the picture of this anterior neck. This is, you can see a little bit of erythema there just from irritation from wiping, but uh, the, all the hyperkeratosis is gone. So this is another thing. If you've, you know, some of you have probably seen this or are familiar with this, but if you've never seen this, you kind of don't know what it is. Once you've seen one case, you'll always know what it is, and you can teach your, your MDs in your office what this is. So I'm going to switch gears now and um, talk about atopic dermatitis. Um, this is the pediatric dermatosis, so if you're going to see kids, you need to become an expert in atopic dermatitis. So I'm going to talk about a few new ideas about the pathogenesis of atopic dermatitis and try to give you some pearls in terms of management. So why do we talk about gentle skin care when we talk about atopic dermatitis? Well, we know that there's a barrier dysfunction that contributes to atopic derm, and whether that's primary to atopic skin or secondary to immune dysregulation, uh, it's a controversial subject right now. We know that that barrier defect is present very early in the disease process. And we, we know that the barrier functions abnormal even in non-lesional skin. That sort of dry but not red, dermatitic, erythematous, inflamed skin that all of our atopics have, those areas have barrier dysfunction. And we can measure that 
by showing increased transepidermal water loss, or TEWL, in those non-involved areas. And what are the consequences of berry dysfunction? Well, it can lead to increased permeability to bacterial pathogens, staph, strep, herpes. Uh, it can lead to increased permeability of allergens and nonspecific irritants. So this just looks at transepidermal water loss and just makes the point that I was trying to make uh, in the last slide. If you look at healthy subjects, this is transepidermal water loss or TEWL on the, on the y-axis, the normal TEWL is less than 10. In atopics, even the non-lesional skin, so this skin is the uninvolved, just dry skin, this transepidermal water loss is about twice what a non-atopic skin would be. And then if you, if you look at transepidermal water loss in, in lesional skin, it's much increased, and the amount is proportional to how severe the lesion is. So, you know, for mild, you might be here. For moderate, you might be here. For severe, you might be up there. And uh, understanding that the barrier really impacts uh, atopic dermatitis and new developments in uh, understanding, for example, filaggrin, which is a, muta a gene that's important for barrier function, has been found to be mutated in a significant percentage of patients with atopic derm. This has really given a lot of weight to the outside-in theory of atopic derm. And basically what that says is that atopic derm is really caused by a genetic abnormality in the barrier. That leads to transepidermal water loss. It leads to allergens and pathogens. They can get in the skin more easily. That's alone enough to recruit an inflammatory infiltrate, and you wind up getting inflammation. Then you get itchy, you scratch. That further damages the skin barrier, causes more inflammation, and you basically get stuck in a positive feedback loop. So in this sense, the skin barrier that's defective leads to inflammation. The competing theory is called the inside-outside theory, and that's that you have some primary dysregulation of T cells which causes inflammation and pruritus and barrier breakdown, and the pathway is really moving in the other direction. I don't think we're going to figure this out this year. Probably it's a mixture of both. We know there are genetic abnormalities that are responsible for atopic dermatitis. Uh, we know that filaggrin mutations are present. We know that patients with atopic dermatitis have decreased total lipid content, and especially their ceramide fraction is decreased. We also know that they preferentially their T cells, when they get activated, preferentially go down a Th2 pathway and secrete specific Th2 cytokines. So uh, it's probably, uh, the pathogenesis is probably complicated and involves both primary immunoregulatory uh, phenomena as well as primary, primary barrier defects. So how does the understanding the skin barrier as uh, an important process in atopic derm help us with our management? Well, another way to sort of look at that is to think of, you know, the dualism between good skin and having an atopic flare as sort of a teeter-totter. You've got your genetic determinants that sort of tell you where you're going to be on this teeter-totter uh, intrinsically. And then you've got in the green boxes sort of the environment affecting uh, the expression of disease. So... Uh, on the good side, you might have gentle skin care, use barrier repair creams or anti-inflammatory agents. On the bad side, there might be mechanical stress to the skin, harsh soaps, friction, sweat, scratching, infection, etc. And I'm going to give you um, 
So, so, so what I'm trying to say is that you need both. To express your atopic flare, you need both the genetic abnormality in your skin and you need some sort of stress. And I'm going to give you three examples that illustrate that way of thinking about things. So here's the first one. This is a toddler who's had a chronic perioral rash for three months, has not improved with 1% hydrocortisone. Here's another one with the, the same problem, and he's sort of holding what might be contributing to, to, to his uh, perioral uh, eczematous reaction. I tried to take it away from him, and he got very defensive, as you can see here. He did not want to let go of that binky. Um, so I call this drooling dermatitis, and it's a consequence of barrier dysfunction um, in patients with atopic dermatitis who also have a mechanical stress. So if you don't have sensitive skin or you don't have atopic skin, you can have as much mechanical stress as you can have there, and you're not going to have a rash. But you know, if you imagine you have sensitive skin and you've got saliva and milk and formula and stuff, food mashing around here five or six times a day, your skin just can't handle that stress if you're atopic. And so you need both the mechanical stress and the atopic phenotype to express drooling dermatitis. So how do you manage this? Gentle skin care is all you really need to do. I tell uh, families to put Vaseline on or barrier, barrier repair cream of choice before meals. That sort of gives you an extra layer of protection. You can add a low-potency topical steroid if you need to, 1%. 2.5% should be all you need. You don't need anything stronger than that. And then reassure them that when they graduate from the high chair and can feed themselves without making a mess, the rash is going to go away. Probably get a rash somewhere else, but that one's going to go away. And this is that same child after just some simple barrier repair um, uh, steps. Still has a little bit of a rash, but much better. So here's the second example. This is a 16-year-old boy with chronic athlete's foot that didn't respond to Lamisil. Again, we can thank our referring physician for excluding tinea pedis. Uh, should respond very well to Lamisil, uh, so we don't really have to worry about that. If you're still worried about it, you could do a KOH in the office and prove to yourself that this is not tinea pedis. People know what this is? Juvenile plantar dermatosis, or the sweaty sock. Some people like to call it the toxic sock syndrome. Um, and it's the most common cause of foot dermatitis in children. Oops. Um, and if you ask, you're almost always going to get an atopic history or family history. And I consider this, you know, variant of eczema, foot eczema. So what are the clues? Why is this not tinea pedis? Well, uh, Tinea Pedis likes the inner digital spaces, the web spaces, and if you look here, they're clear. It's the weight-bearing surfaces that are affected, the, bo the bottom of the big toe, the ball of the foot. Um, so to express this, you need two things. Just like before, you need an atopic phenotype, so sensitive skin or eczema, and sweaty feet. So if you, don't, if you have eczema and you don't have sweaty feet, you don't get this. And if you have sweaty feet and you don't have eczema, you don't get this. You need both. The coefficient of friction in a moist environment is about 10 times that uh, uh, compared to a dry environment. So if you can imagine you know, an active school-aged child you know, who's got sweaty feet running around in a sweaty sock and shoe all day, that friction, that mechanical stress, 
combined with an atopic phenotype is going to be more than that barrier can handle and you're going to wind up getting barrier dysfunction and expressing eczema in those areas. And that's why the web spaces aren't involved because there's no friction there. The third example is cleansers. You know, we always talk about gentle soap. Why do we talk about gentle soap with atopic derm? Well, I'm going to tell you why. Uh, the pH of the skin is, is acidic. It's uh, 4.5 to 6.5, slightly acidic. The pH of true soaps are very alkaline. True soaps are made from a process that uses lye, superfatting sodium hydroxide, and the resultant product is very alkaline. So most soaps are pH 9 to 11. Bleach is like 14. So, you know, we're on our way there. Uh, synthetic detergent or Syndet bars, which are our gentle cleansers like Dove and Cetaphil, those aren't true soaps. They're the synthetic detergents. And they're neutralized to slightly acidic to neutral pH. And that's why we recommend those, because uh, they don't disturb the pH of the skin barrier. So just a chart of what some typical pHs of some cleansers that your patients might be using. Um, you know, the, the gentle skin uh, soaps like Aveeno and Cetaphil and Dove, they're all going to be neutral to slightly acidic. Ivory, very alkaline. Um, I don't know if anyone oops, um, in the audience is old enough to remember the Ivory Girl commercials. Well, none of the Ivory Girls had eczema. I can promise you that. Their skin looked too good. Um, antibacterial soaps are also very alkaline. Uh, glycerin soaps, alkaline. Um, so the type of soap you choose really makes a difference. Um, a lot of the enzymes that are important for uh, stratum corneum function are optimized to work at a certain pH, and that pH is around 6. Uh, and if you alkalinize the skin with uh, an alkaline soap, you're, you're going to retard the ability of those uh, normal barrier repair enzymes to work properly, and that includes filaggrin. Okay, so what do you do for the itchy, chronically inflamed, flared-up patient with widespread disease? The patient that you love to see at 4.30 in the afternoon on a Friday. Um, this is a great secret weapon for the weekend, uh, wet wraps. So the wet wrap dressing technique improves atopic dermatitis. It decreases the severity, it decreases transepidermal water loss, and it decreases staph colonization. And I'll show you how to do a wet wrap. So the first thing you do is apply your steroid cream. I wouldn't use anything stronger than 0.1% triamcinolone ointment. Uh, you could use uh, a lower potency like a desinide, or you could use plain Vaseline or the barrier repair agent of your choice. Uh, you take a pair of pajamas and you soak it in water, warm water. You wring them out so they're not dripping wet but just damp. And this is all in your handout that's, or in the, the uh, flash drive that you're going to get. Um, then you put, a, uh, you put the pajamas on and then you put a dry pair over the damp pair. Uh, make sure the room is warm enough, especially in the wintertime. And you've got to be firm. Kids don't like this. Um, and I usually recommend wet wraps every night for a week. In truth, probably three or four days is all people really are going to do, but it's amazing how well this works. This is sort of your emergency atopic derm therapy. Everybody gets better with wet wraps. Everybody does. And when we used to hospitalize patients for a bad atopic derm, this is essentially the nursing care that they'd get in the hospital, and that's why they'd get better. How do you approach the patient with atopic derm and recurrent skin infections? This is a big problem. Um, 
you can't eradicate staph in atopic patients. Everybody with staph, everybody with atopic derm carries staph chronically on their skin and it's impossible to eradicate it. You can temporarily decrease staph with antibiotics, but they'll recolonize almost immediately. Short courses of systemic antibiotics are appropriate when your staph colony counts uh, get to enough density that you have clinical appearance of superinfection or impetigo. Uh, you want to just reinforce routine hy hygiene. You want to keep those nails sh short. It's amazing how many people don't think uh, about changing sleepwear and bedding. Uh, you know, maybe once a week is typical for most kids, but if you have a bad atopic who's getting a lot of infections, you may need to change their sleepwear and towels daily. Uh, and then I'm going to talk about bleach baths uh, a little, in a little more detail here. Uh, this is a study that came out this year in pediatrics uh, by Amy Powler's group. Um, randomized investigator-blind placebo-controlled study. They looked at 31 patients um, with moderate to severe atopic derm and secondary bacterial infections. Uh, the treatment group got in, intranasal mupirocin and bleach baths. And so a bleach bath is a half a cup of bleach in a full bath of water or a quarter cup and a half bath. Um, and uh, the, the um, control group got intranasal petrolatum and plain water baths. The bleach baths were five to ten minutes long, twice a week for three months. And the bleach bath group showed significantly greater mean reductions from baseline and eczema scores. And the bleach baths, uh, surprisingly, were very well tolerated. After what I told you about alkaline soaps, you might think, well, how could you justify uh, having someone take a bath in bleach? The pH of the bleach bath is actually neutral. There's not enough bleach to really affect the pH. All right. Um, this little girl uh, is a seven-year-old with a history of atopic derm. She's been on multiple antibiotics. Her last Keflex was three months ago. Here she is in your office, looking very sick. She's got a fever. How would you manage her? Would you, A, culture and hold antibiotics until we got our culture back? B, start antibiotics and forget the culture? C, uh, through F, culture and either start Keflex, clindamycin, doxycycline, or septra? So think about what you, what you think the best answer is. And there's not necessarily one best answer. There's a couple wrong answers, but there's not necessarily one best answer. Okay, so uh, culture and hold antibiotics is not appropriate. She looks toxic. She's got a fever. I actually hospitalized her from clinic. She had bacteremia. Start antibiotics, no culture is not appropriate these days with MRSA. You've got to know what you're treating. I think you're irresponsible if you give someone an systemic antibiotics and don't do a culture. You must culture. Um, we're not going to start doxycycline because she's seven years old and doxycycline is not approved for those under eight. Um, so our three reasonable choices are culture and start Keflex, culture and start clenomycin, or culture and start Septra. Um, and I don't really have that strong opinion about what, which one of those you pick. Personally, um, I like Keflex still in our community. We still have less than 30% of our patients that we culture that come back MRSA. Even those that do have MRSA still have a lot of methicillin-sensitive staph and 
By the time two days goes by and you get your culture back and you realize they had an MRSA, we just switched their antibiotic, they've still improved in those two days because the Keflex is still getting rid of the MSSA. In areas where there's more frequent uh, MRSA, um, you might go with a, a, a clindamycin or a septra antibiotic. Um, interestingly, we're finding out that those uh, atopic patients that get superinfected usually don't have MRSA. It's a very different epidemiology than the non-atopic patient that might get an abscess. Those are generally MRSA now. But some of this data is just coming out this year. I didn't have time to review it for you. There's two or three studies that are, are pointing to the fact that the, the actual incidence of MRSA in atopics is much lower than uh, in the other uh, population. And it's probably because they're all colonized with staph, and the MSSA is probably just outcompeting the MRSA. Um, that epidemiology might change, but look for that in your journals in the next year. So this girl had strep, um, and uh, I think that's one of the reasons she was so sick. Um, strep is really emerging as um, an important pathogen in atopic dermatitis. I'm running a little short on time, so I'm going to go through these a little quickly, but we did a retrospective study looking at uh, infections in those with atopic dermatitis, and we found that uh, almost 30% had uh, strep uh, uh, that was cultured. Um, and what are the clues that it's strep? Strep tends to cause more of a periorbital and facial involvement, as you can see in these two cases, than staph. These kids are also sicker, more likely to be hospitalized, and have fever and invasive infection than those colonized with staph alone. And interestingly, they tend to have a punched out, some of these patients have a more of a herpetic morphology. A lot of those patients were cultured for HSV because the doctor thought they might have herpes, but they were negative. So if you have something that looks herpetiform or has a child that's sicker than you might think or in more pain or has a more facial or periorbital involvement, think strep. And that's one argument for not putting someone on septra empirically. Uh, septra does not have good activity against group A strep. So another reason to use um, Keflex or clindamycin. I'm going to move on to hemangiomas. I'm going to show you a couple cases and some pearls. This is a three-month-old here for an evaluation of a lip hemangioma. She has a twin that didn't have a hemangioma, and she's been healthy aside from three episodes of croup. Does that ring a bell to anybody, what you should be worried about? So I saw that, I saw that patient when I was a medical student, actually, uh, in San Diego, um, and she had an airway hemangioma. Um, so beware of hemangioma in the so-called beard distribution. So uh, chin, anterior neck, and all the way up, the mandible, uh, those are associated with subglottic hemangioma and subglottic stenosis. Her airway larynx was lasered, and her croup went away. How would you manage this seven-month-old with this kind of pedunculated hemangioma on the forehead? A interlesional catalog and uh, pulse dye laser, B, systemic steroids, C, propranolol, D, refer for surgery, and E, reassurance it's going to involute over time. How many people have seen a pedunculated hemangioma? Raise your hand. Not very many, okay. Um, so the, my opinion about this is refer for surgery. And I think the important thing here, if we just go back, 
uh, is that this kind of type of hemangioma, once it involutes, is still going to lead a kind of a baggy, fiber fatty residue, even if, if it involutes. So the key point is that involution is not resolution. This is what it looked like when it was coming out. These are courtesy of Barry Cunningham. Here's another pedunculated hemangioma. You know, even when that involutes, she's going to have to live with this for nine years, you know, and get teased about it and feel uncomfortable going to the swimming pool, et cetera. And when we're all done, she's going to have this big baggy residue. It's going to need plastic surgery anyway. So you might as well do it early. Here's another patient. You know, the horse is out of the barn here. Once, even once this involutes, it's going to leave a bag of fiber fatty residue. So this is right after uh, her excision, and this is, you know, a year later. Look how good that result is. I mean, that's fabulous. Again, this is courtesy of Barry Cunningham. So this patient has uh, a lot of small hemangiomas. What would you do? Initially, would you reassure the family that the hemangiomas are small and will involute in a couple years? B, recommend pulse-eye laser. It should be very effective because they're so small. Uh, C, check a CBC, LFTs, thyroid function, and do an abdominal ultrasound. And D, order an MRI with angiography. Well, the answer is C, check your labs and do an ultrasound. This patient has neonatal hemangiomatosis. Um, and typically, if you look retrospectively, uh, at those with visceral involvement, most of them have more, five or more cutaneous hemangiomas. So for most pediatric dermatologists, the cutoff is five. If they have more than five hemangiomas, you need to work them up for visceral hem hemangiomatosis. And most of those visceral hemangiomas are in the liver, uh, but you can see hemangiomas in the GI tract, lung, central nervous system, etc. This can lead to high output congestive heart failure and often uh, hypothyroidism is associated, so you need to check a thyroid as well. So um, this, uh, these two pictures are from a New England Journal of Article, New England Journal of Medicine article, and a pediatrics follow-up article that came out last year and this year, respectively, um, looking at propranolol for infantile hemangioma. This has been just a complete breakthrough in the last year. Um, and a lot of people are talking about it. Your patients, if you see children and you see hemangiomas, you're going to get asked about uh, propranolol. It's a beta blocker. In this follow-up study in pediatrics, which just came out a couple months ago, uh, kids were given 2 to 3 milligrams per kilogram, divided TID. Average age to start was 4 months. And propranolol really had an immediate effect on the color and growth of these hemangiomas in all cases. Uh, systemic steroids uh, were able to be stopped within a few weeks. Relapses were mild and responded to retreatment. And side effects in this study were limited and mild. Bradycardia, hypotension, hypoglycemia, and bronchospasm. Um, so I'll just show you some data from this article. Uh, this is before treatment, a week into treatment, two months, and this is age 11 month, one, at, one month after stopping. I mean, this is really an amazing result. Steroids wouldn't do this. I mean, steroids are good for stopping the growth, but they're not nearly as good in the majority of cases at, at uh, shrinking the hemangioma. Only about a third of cases that go on steroids, the hemangiomas actually shrink. It's good to stop the growth, but not as good for shrinkage. This is just absolutely amazing. Um, if you see a patient like this, you need to worry about face syndrome. That's a whole nother talk, but uh, you need to work them up for face syndrome. Uh, this child almost certainly had face syndrome. Um, 
Here's another, here's that lip I showed you. Uh, two months after starting, three months, five months. This picture is a little blurry, but you can see, I mean, that's just an amazing result. You know, you would have thought before propranolol that this lip would have been deformed forever. Um, there's still going to be some deformity that's going to require some minor plastic surgery, but this is really a miracle drug for this patient and for this uh, uh, segment of patients. Some words of caution, though. Uh, I would not underemphasize the potential for bradycardia and hypoglycemia in young infants. Or, oops, there have already been several uh, cases reported. Um, young infants that go on propranolol need to be woken up every three hours to eat because they're uh, in significant danger of getting hypoglycemia in the middle of the night. Um, and so, just be careful about this. Uh, make sure that. Uh, you talk to people the first couple times you use propranolol that have used it before. Um, and uh, even though I just showed you those remarkable results, the evidence to date is really based on observations of small groups, and there has not been a randomized controlled trial. Fortunately, there is one that's enrolling now, and in a year or a year and a half, we should have really good data. I'm very enthusiastic about propranolol, but, uh, and, and derms in general tend to be early adopters. This is one case set of cases where I would just caution you to, you know, go slow. <laughs> All right, so um, the last segment is uh, melanistic nevi and melanoma, and I'm going to give you some pearls in the last 10 minutes or so uh, on how to deal with a certain subtypes of nevi. So this is uh, a nevus from um, the upper forehead. Uh, this, this child had several scalp nevi, um, and uh, the mom was really worried about them, so was the doctor. So uh, how would you manage this, uh, this nevus? Would you do a shave? Would you do a punch, incisional biopsy? And if you choose B, what kind of punch would you use, two, three, or four? Would you do an elliptical excisional biopsy, or would you reassure the family? How many people think the answer is D? Okay, well, that's the right answer. Um, this is the eclipse nevus, um, and uh, it's characterized by a nevus with a darker rim and a lighter center. Uh, there can be some very irregular uh, pigment in the rim. The scalp is a really common location. I get referrals for scalp nevi all the time. I'm not sure why people are more worried about scalp nevi than regular the nevi in other locations, uh, but they are. Um, on dermoscopy, they tend to have a structural center and a reticular pigment pattern on the periphery. In the Yale registry, there have been no melanomas to date that have developed in an eclipse nevus. Should really be called, called, called a reverse eclipse because the darker part is on the outside, but the name sort of stuck. So um, this is a different kind of nevus, four-year-old boy with a pink spot that just appeared overnight. Here's the dermatoscopic image. It's very vascular looking. There's some pigment, some structureless areas. Do you guys know what this is? So what are you going to do with this? You're going to do A, do a shave biopsy. B, do a punch incisional biopsy. And if you choose B, uh, what kind of punch are you going to use? C, do you do an elliptical excisional biopsy? Or D, reassure the family. 
How many people pick D? A few? Um, there's no right answer to this question. Here's uh, another image, uh, not from that particular lesion, but from the same category of lesion. Uh, and um, by dermoscopy, you see sort of a starburst sort of pattern, which is characteristic. This is Spitz nevis. They can be pink and very vascular looking with dermoscopy. They can be brown or jet black with sort of the starburst pattern on dermoscopy. And so what are the issues with Spitz nevis? Spitz nevis makes people nervous. And probably because uh, it used to be called benign juvenile melanoma. So that sounds wor worrisome. That's a bad term that's no longer used. There are no benign melanomas. So uh, fortunately, uh, most people don't use that term, and I would not encourage you to use that term. Use the term Spitz nevis. Uh, you need to know your dermatopathologist. Um, diagnosis can be very difficult. What do you do if the margins aren't clear, the management's controversial? So let's look at some of these. Um, this is just my opinion. You're gonna, if you talk to 10 different dermatologists, you probably get 10 different opinions about this. My first opinion is that Spitz nevi are benign. So that's going to be the overriding opinion that's going to color everything I'm going to say about Spitz nevi. If you strongly suspect it's a Spitz nevus clinically and dermatoscopically, what you need to do is photograph and measure, follow the lesion clinically. That's what you need to do. If there are cosmetic concerns, remove it. Probably shave removal is the best way to do that if it's papular um, and on the face, like the first case we saw. So, but I would also just remind you to be very clear about what you're doing and why you're doing it. We're not removing it because we're worried about it. We're removing it because the family doesn't want it there and uh, the child isn't objecting too much. Um, and then last, know who you're sending the path to. Okay, if you're going to send the path to somebody who calls everything a melanoma or calls it a spitz and recommends a five millimeter margin on re-excision, don't send it to that person because then you're pretty much boxed in the corner and if the family wants a copy of the path report, you're going to have a situation that you really don't want to be in. So if you get that path report that says re-excise with three to five millimeter margins, I've gotten this report on ordinary Spitz nevi before. It's really a nightmare. You're going to do a three to five millimeter margin on that and give the kid a scar in the center of his face for the rest of his life? I would ask that dermatopathologist to come in the exam room with the patient and talk to, me, talk to the family about that instead of letting, leaving it to me. Um, so I would, I, I would really encourage you to know your dermatopathologist. So here's some other spitz nevi. These are a little weirder looking. Most people would biopsy that. You might biopsy that. A um, little harder to do a shave here because it's flat. So a punch might be better. These aren't on the face, luckily. So let's just talk about atypical spitz nevus. Um, this is a path report that you'll occasionally get back as well. So the, the really important point here is that the issue is diagnostic uncertainty, not the biologic nature of the spitz nevus. As I told you before, spitz nevi are benign. So the issue is, what's the diagnosis? Sometimes spitz nevi can look so bizarre and melanoma-like un under the microscope that the pathologist can't tell. So they call it atypical spitz or favor atypical spitz over melanoma, but there are large nests, there are some maybe a mitosis, there might not be any camino bodies, and it's just vague and 
uh, the pathologist can't know for sure if it's pediatric melanoma or it's just a weird-looking Spitz nevus. So that's really the issue is diagnostic uncertainty. Remember, anything that contains melanocytes can become melanoma. So a Spitz nevus can become melanoma. A dysplastic nevus can become melanoma. A congenital nevus can become melanoma. An acquired nevus can become melanoma. Just a regular spot of skin that never had a nevus can become melanoma. A lentigo can become melanoma. That's lentigo maligna. That's melanoma on sun-damaged skin. Anywhere that there's melanocytes, there's the potential to lose growth control and form a cancer of those melanocytes. That's melanoma. So sure, there will be an occasional Spitz nevus that degenerates into melanoma. But the real question is, do Spitz nevi have an increased likelihood of becoming melanoma than any other spot on your skin? And I, my feeling is that the answer is really no, um, but we just don't have good data to know the answer to that. Um, so uh, caveat is any path report suggesting melanoma in a child with melanic melanocytic neoplasm that looks like a spitz, I would send that for a second opinion. This is someone's life you're dealing with, and I, uh, I would definitely get a second opinion. Um, if you're a trusted pathologist or several are uncertain about whether it's spitz or melanoma, I would consider a molecular study. Uh, comparative genomic hybridization or the FISH fluorescent in situ hybridization. Those are becoming more and more used throughout the country. We use them at our institution on a regular basis. The molecular signature of Spitz nevus looks very different than melanoma. And so sometimes if there's diagnostic uncertainty and you send for CGH or FISH, you can get an answer. And that technology is just going to get better and better um, over time. I'm just going to spend the last couple of minutes uh, talking about pediatric melanoma. Uh, melanoma in childhood is very rare, fortunately, um, and especially in the under 10 years of age group, it's exceedingly rare, less than one per million per year. Um, the pediatric melanomas tend to have a worse prognosis because the melanomas are more advanced at the time of diagnosis, but millimeter for millimeter, they have the same prognosis as adults. We're all familiar with the ABCDs. Here uh, is a pretty ugly-looking PG-like uh, lesion in a child. This is Ron Hansen's case. Um, and uh, there was a retrospective study uh, done by Silverberg um, that looked at 33 childhood melanomas and found that most of them were nodular, pedunculated, or amelanotic. Frequently, there was a pyogenic granuloma type of look so if you think some, we see a lot of PGs in our practice, and so do you, uh, when you treat those, you must send tissue. Don't just destroy them. What I do is I sh do a shave, submit that for path, and then cure at the base and hyfricate it, and you're done. If you don't shave and submit for path, uh, you might miss a pediatric melanoma. That would be a catastrophe for you and your patient. The ABCD rule is not as useful in pediatric melanoma as in adults. Uh, this is a, yeah. If you think it's melanoma, I would definitely do an excisional biopsy. If you think it's a PG, a pyogenic granuloma, then I shave those, curette, and hyfricate. It leaves a very nice cosmetic result. Um, worst case scenario, it's a melanoma. We, we found that out, and then we go proceed with melanoma treatment. 
this is the last case. Another, uh, this is, I think I got this one from the internet. Uh, 10-year-old girl with mastoid melanoma. Um, and ugly, ugly, ugly looking under the microscope. Uh, large resection. And uh, she's doing well. This is actually, this is Ron Hatson's case again. And that, we're out of time. Thank you very much. <laughs>